0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. And I'm also happy to say that he happens to be my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? <laughs>
1: I'm really good. Uh, you happen to be my son and it's kind of irrevocable. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> Too bad. We're
0: we all have our other. crosses to bear in life. You know, this this one I know, is it's ours. a tough thing. Yeah. So <laughs> inside of that lovely context, today we're actually talking about something that I know that you've been excited for. We're gonna be talking about equanimity. And that's kind of a fancy word for something that we've all been facing this year which is basically the idea of staying sane in the face of a world that often feels like it's lost its mind a little bit. Um, It's one thing to use some of the tools that we talk about on this podcast when things feel stable and are going kind of good enough, but it's really another to apply them when the world around us feels really threatening. So today, again, we're gonna be talking about maintaining our equanimity. Another way to put that maybe is maintaining our composure, our presence of mind, and maybe, hey, if we can pull it off, even our well being under challenging circumstances. So, does that sound good to you?
1: I love this topic because, in addition to its practical value, it sits right at the intersection of very cool brain science and very profound ancient wisdom. So, I'm looking forward to getting into this with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, to kind of start right there, And just get some clarity about what we're we're talking about here. How would Mm -hmm. you describe equanimity practically?
1: Yeah, a couple different ways. One is to walk evenly over uneven ground. Another kind of poetic sense of equanimity comes from the African-American minister, um, Howard Thurman, who said, looking out upon the world with quiet eyes. The world itself may be noisy, may be busy, may be really all kinds of ways, but deep inside, there's a quiet in the in the eyes that look at the world. Another uh, definition of equanimity uh, that's near to my experience, uh, having sailed some, as a very inept sailor who actually
0: capsized <laughs> a sailboat. <laughs> he was learning on <laughs> truly. one of your finer moments.
1: <laughs> one of my finer moments. I flipped the boat over. We, uh, in part, because it did not have a keel, mm, mm-hmm. and sailboats that have a keel. Are able to manage the waves that come toward the ship or boat and keep on going out into the deep dark blue. And I think of the development of equanimity, the cultivation of it, is like deepening the keel in your personal sailboat.
0: Mm-hmm. So that yeah, mm-hmm.
1: the waves of life come, but they don't capsize you. And also because you know that you have a kind of unshakable, resilient well-being in your core that's that's innate to you because you've acquired it over time, you then can become more confident going out and facing opportunities, facing new challenges, daring greatly as Brene Brown puts it, and sailing the deep dark blue.
0: So you've talked about it kind of generally or using sort of Mm -hmm. artistic or metaphorical language so far. Inside of the brain, to maybe ask a clunky question, how does equanimity happen? How would you describe it uh, cognitively?
1: Oh yeah, inquiring minds would like to know. Well. I want to get to that by first describing it in a little more precise and granular way psychologically,
0: Mm, and mm -hmm. then
1: we'll map that mental description to plausible underlying neural factors. Mm -hmm. So moment by moment by moment, we are having uh, experiences and stimuli are, are bearing down upon us, and in response to them, we have a sense of what's called their hedonic tone as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. This is also a, a very central to Buddhist psychology and the Buddhist teachings about the what's translated often as the feeling tone of experience, although it's not about emotion per se, it's really a hedonic tone. Mm-hmm. And we can be aware of that quality in our experience by noticing the distinctions among the, the, the sense of wanting to withdraw from something, to move away from it, or second, to move toward it, or third, abide in relationship with it. And they all can feel slightly different. And uh, the way it works in the brain is that the sense of things as unpleasant tends to be an internal signal that initiates a cascade of withdrawal behaviors or uh, efforts to maximize safety uh, in the face of threat. On the other hand, the hedonic tone of pleasant tends to initiate a cascade, a neural and hormonal cascade that's pursuit or approaching or promoting what's pleasant to protect it and increase it, uh, even create it. Okay, so that gives us a sense of this territory. And what the Buddha taught really practically and in, in an utterly not religious, down-to-earth, down pragmatic kind of way He said, basically, notice what happens after the hedonic tone, Mm. and notice Mm -hmm. the sequence that often can move from the sense of things being unpleasant and then getting hijacked by fear, anger, helplessness, and a kind of aversion to the experience and a pressured desire to push it away or to get away from it. In effect, it's a kind of craving for not. On the other hand, notice what happens when it's pleasant. And I'll just stick with the classic Buddhist psychology here, uh, unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral. If it's pleasant, notice what happens then. Do we wanna get more of it, my precious? You know, Do we wanna possess it, claim it, get addicted to it, and so forth? And what he taught is that it's really useful, as you've said many times, Forrest, in this podcast, to build out and claim and increasingly inhabit the space between the hedonic tone and the reactivity to it. And in that space is our freedom and in that space is our equanimity. So to sum it up, operationally, we could say that in contrast to relaxation or tranquility. So if you're really relaxed or really tranquil, you're having relaxing experiences. You're having tranquil experiences. Equanimity is non-reactivity to all experiences. Mm. So it's more fundamental and profound. The experiences are occurring. They're, they may be passing through awareness. They're in, if the mind is like a vast sky, these clouds or flocks of birds, even terrible th- thunderstorms are moving through the sky of awareness. But the one who is having those experiences is fundamentally undisturbed and retaining a sense of well being in their core. Mm, That's the mm -hmm. deep, deep meaning of equanimity. And the ultimate development of it um, is a real basis, certainly, for the highest levels of of human capacity, human potential.
0: That's a great framing of the sort of psychological character of equanimity. I would love to get to kind of the brain science of it or the plausible brain science of it, which I know you're pretty familiar with here. Great. So
1: what I'm saying is plausible, at least in my view, (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it's not wildly implausible. And um, and it's not like we've got a hundred very, very well-developed MRI studies on what's actually happening inside the brains of people. Yeah, this is an are,
0: emergent territory.
1: Yeah, who yeah. are truly equanimous. So with that as kind of a, as an honest uh, disclaimer, uh, let's look at several aspects of equanimity. So one is being able to regulate emotional reactivity. So this has to do with forms of regulation of the subcortical systems that primarily are about the uh, uh, amygdala and hippocampus, so that as the amygdala tracks the personal relevance of our experiences, and in most people is biased negatively, the amygdala is, although it appears that there's a subgroup of people that do deal with negative experiences, but are actually quite inclined toward pursuing or approaching opportunities, not just avoiding threats. So one thing that certainly is happening in the brain uh, in terms of uh, peop- the development over time of growing equanimity is a growing uh, reduction of amygdala sensitivity and intensity in its signaling and processes, uh, and also an improvement of regulation of the amygdala by the hippocampus. And it is interesting, just as a detail, that people who have a long-term mindfulness or meditative practice who tend to by report and correlation to become calmer and more centered over time, they show improved gray matter, and white matter rather, increased matter in the hippocampus. They're training their hippocampus, and so its capacity to calm down the alarm bell is improving. And also, people with the long-term practice uh, tend to have a less reactive amygdala, and they tend to have greater regulation of the amygdala top-down from the prefrontal cortex. So that's one way of operationalizing a key aspect of equanimity. Mm, mm -hmm. Here's another one that I'm really fond of, because when (laughs) you get a good mapping between ancient wisdom, let's say, or perennial wisdom, really, it's not just ancient, perennial wisdom, and cutting-edge brain science, like literally in the last 10 years brain science, it's really exciting. So I'm going to give you a little thought experiment for us. Imagine you're at a party. And you're with friends, Mm -hmm. and I know you like to cook. It's true. Actually, people should know you are quite an extremely good cook. Oh, thank you, Dad. Nuance in your discernment. So now you have this meal, and let's say um, you're on the receiving end of the food. You go to someone's house, and it's an incredible meal, and you're unbelievably Mm -hmm. stuffed. And then they bring out the dessert. Oh, my gosh. You feel like you're about to burst they bring out the first dessert. You like it a lot. You love it. You know. They say, "Do you want? Do you want my second dessert? I have this whole other really great dessert."
0: I'm I'm starting to get full, man. I don't know.
1: Yeah, you're starting to get satiated. But you yeah. say,
0: "Okay, I'll mm-hmm. I'll try it." Okay, okay,
1: fine. And then they bring out a third dessert, and mm. they say, "Please, please eat it." Ugh. No, I'm stuffed, Max. They whip out a spoonful of it, put it on your lips, and they ask you, "Do you like it?" You say, "Yeah, I like it. It tastes great." Do you want it? No, I'm full. So we see right there this inherent decoupling, or potential decoupling of liking and wanting. And it could be valence the other ways. We can find certain things to be unpleasant, but we're not bothered by them. We don't we're not hijacked by this intense desire, this aversion to them, and it wants to push them away. So mm-hmm. we see this, this um, differentiation of liking and wanting.
0: Just to say really quickly, this is a very important distinction that you're drawing here. It's really fundamental to both psychology and human behavior.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And a, and, a, and how to live in a world of pleasures wisely,
0: mm, enjoying
1: mm-hmm. without getting caught up in the, the pitfalls of craving. You know, there's a proverb that says that liking without wanting is heaven, wanting without liking is hell. Mm -hmm. So how can we, and and if you think also to go back to that space between, in this case, let's say the pleasantness of the hedonic tone that naturally fosters liking, fine, that's really different from the movement into wanting in the problematic sense of -hmm. drivenness, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. addiction, possessiveness, and so forth. Well, in the subcortical region of your brain, in a part of it called the basal ganglia, technically, again, there are two, one on either side, Um, This is an ancient part of the brain that we do share with advanced reptiles like crocodiles, but it really goes back 200 plus million years in its origins. It's a center of our motivational systems in the brain. And there's a node, there's a little section in it that is called either the ventral, which means lower striatum, or it's called the nucleus accumbens, two words at the same place. In that little small part of the brain are distinct, anatomically distinct and functionally distinct little nodes. Imagine ballpark, 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 cubic millimeters of tissue in which are packed hundreds of thousands of synapses, ballpark. And there are distinct nodes that do liking for or liking not, and two other distinct nodes that do wanting for or wanting not.
0: Mm, So mm -hmm. we
1: see right there baked into a very deep structure in our own brain, this distinction between liking and wanting. And equanimity is living in liking or disliking without being swept away into problematic forms of wanting.
0: That's a great way to frame it. To kind of flip the script on us a little bit and have you be captain top-down rationality and me wander toward uh, other ways of thinking about these things. (laughs) Equanimity is actually considered one of the four key virtues in Buddhism. And when I'm referring to Buddhism here, there's an important distinction to be made, I think, between the kind of more philosophical approaches of it and the more religious approaches of it. I'm going to stay kind of in the philosophical territory because that's where I traffic more personally. And there are actually two translations of the word for equanimity in Buddhism. Uh, The first essentially means the ability to see without being caught by Mm. what it is that we see. Yeah. Then the second can be translated something along the lines of to stand in the middle of all of this. And I think that those are two really wonderful translations that summarize kind of everything that we've said here in a really tidy way.
1: I am so glad you brought that up for us and I and I think um I think by when you said philosophical, you probably mean more broadly secular, because sure, a lot of yeah, what you're speaking totally. to mm-hmm. yeah, is very experiential and psychological, yep, but it's absolutely. not inherently yeah. religious in any way. It's mm-hmm. not the property of any tradition inherently. But And implicit in both of those is freedom.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. And so for me, equanimity to kind of summarize this surprisingly long introduction that we've done here, but I'm really glad that we did it. In a very tidy way, I do think equanimity is really about having emotional freedom. It's about being at choice instead of at effect, the things that we choose to allow to infiltrate the mind and remain, Uh, to use again the language of Buddhism, which I'm leaning on heavily as a crutch during this episode apparently, Uh (laughs) um, versus the things that we let just kind of slide on by without swinging at that pitch. And I think that this whole conversation um, gets to a common question around Mm. this territory. This is one that we've responded to pretty frequently during similar episodes, so I don't Mm. want to spend too much time here. But to ask the questions, it's basically, is it inappropriate to have equanimity among challenging circumstances? Or maybe to put it even more strongly, is equanimity is equanimity kind of a privileged idea? Does it uh, support oppression by moving people toward not taking action to change the negative things in their life? Is it something that it's really easy for, say, two white men to talk about, but a little bit more challenging for two not-white men to talk about, or whatever else? What's kind of your thinking on that?
1: Well, first, that it's an extremely important question in a very understandable and legitimate one. I would make the point first that pragmatically, the more disruptive and challenging and oppressive a person's world is, or the more that they're dealing with invasive physical pains or illness in their own body, or the residues of psychological material, maybe from a trauma history, the bigger the waves, the deeper the keel. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So the more important it is, to develop equanimity. You can get away with very little equanimity if you're born on third base and claim that you hit a triple.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Right? It's the people who are struggling upstream every day just to get to the just to get to an at bat in the face of pitchers and others who are cheating all the time to try to hurt them. So people who are least privileged have the greatest need actually for equanimity. Hmm. Second, I would say that Every life is challenging in its own way, and we all will face the challenge of losing those we love and eventually exiting our own fleshy existence from this mortal coil, mm-hmm. eventually. And so we all need equanimity. It's, it's for everybody, really. Now, it is true that equanimity itself is, in my view, morally neutral. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important for people who train in these ways to appreciate that and not just um, take the easy way out and somehow assume that their cultivation of mindfulness or their cultivation, let's say, of equanimity will itself warm their heart or move them into a moral response to the suffering of the world. And that's where certainly in the Buddhist tradition, and I think you'll find many similar things, including in secular humanism, and and also in other spiritual traditions, uh, this coming together of compassion and equanimity. Equanimity is fostered in part by wisdom. Uh, it's one of the other factors that we could talk about, maybe neurologically, that supports equanimity. So you know, the jewel and the lotus could be understood as compassion and wisdom together, compassion and equanimity together. But it's the two together that are really important. Mm, and mm-hmm. yes, sure, someone could use their equanimous powers, <laughs> you know, they're superpowers <laughs> of equanimity to avoid being upset about the world. And I think it is true that sometimes people do use it as a spiritual bypass. John mm. Wellwood coined mm-hmm. that term and, you know, bless his memory. And um, I think it's possible, but it's not inherent. And if anything, in a funny kind of way, I know this personally, as you develop your equanimity, and we can see this in people like the Dalai Lama, as you develop your equanimity, you actually become more emotionally available to the world. Yeah, because you're not gonna be overwhelmed and invaded and and flooded and consumed by it. So actually deepening in your personal equanimity supports the opening of your heart and also enables you to fight the good fight, right? Mm -hmm. The good trouble that John Lewis, bless his memory too, uh, talked about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to put it kind of simply, we support action in the world by supporting ourselves very good. And this is something that we've talked about over and over again on the podcast. If you are worn down, worn out, flooded, overwhelmed, whatever, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be in much of a position to contribute positively to the needs of those around you. Or at the very least, it's going to be a lot harder, and you're probably eventually going to burn out. And burnout doesn't really help anyone. To offer another clarification that's maybe useful here, you were talking about the hedonic tone earlier, and I think that that's actually a great way to think about this as well. Because equanimity is not ignoring the hedonic tone of an experience. It is not saying that an unpleasant experience is in fact okay. That's gaslighting. That's That's a totally different thing. That's not equanimity at all. That's somebody trying to deceive you. So if you run into a conversation on social media where somebody is doing this very high-minded, I should say, very pretend high-minded stance of, oh, why don't you just hold yourself above the fray or whatever else? Or, oh, it's really not that bad. Just kind of try to have peace inside your own mind. That's gaslighting. That's not them Mm -hmm. being equanimous. Equanimous? Equanimous? Yeah. (laughs) how do you you say that i don't know whatever it is equanimous 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 sorry my bad yeah equanimous that's not them being equanimous anyways that's i think a really really important distinction here
1: you know it reminds me of a book that i've talked a little bit about i think it's titled who lives who dies and -hmm. it's about stories of survival under extreme circumstances one kind or another and it's not a guarantee, but it definitely improves your odds uh, if you retain a fundamental calm in the core of your being. Around the edges, you might be running for your life from the forest fire. You might be dealing with someone who's trying to kill you, starting to carjack you, whatever it might be. But in the core, you're retaining a kind of clarity about what you're going to do. You're, you're, you're thinking on your own feet.
0: I think that's great context, and to move from some of that context that we would offered so far around equanimity and to practice what to do about it. When I was a kid, I was really fair by nature, uh, possibly to a fault. I don't necessarily say this as a good thing. I was the kind of kid who got really shocked and, you know, kind of probably more bent out of shape than I needed to get, to be honest about it, when I saw somebody cheating or breaking the rules in soft ways or doing things that just felt kind of unfair to me. And it made me really, really mad. Right now, it feels like there are a lot of people who are having that experience. And I think that there are some ways where the intensity of this last year has laid out the many unfairnesses of the world in a lot of different arenas very starkly. Yeah. And I know that you personally, Dad, have often really struggled with this feeling, feeling like the world is unfair and things aren't going the way they should be going. and. Why aren't the people who are doing bad things being punished for the bad things that they're doing and so on and so on and so on, and this raises a key question: maintaining equanimity during that experience is a hard thing to do. so how have you personally dealt with that?
1: Well, um you and I are alike in many ways that I think are good, uh including the sensitivity to injustice and a very wholesome and sweet preservation inside of a vision of the possible world that we all could live in for the many, not just for the few. And a longing to have that kind of world, a longing for a just world. And I suspect that many other people can relate to these, to these feelings. And you're exactly right. Uh, how can we retain a certain equanimity in the face of enormous injustice? And this is where I think A few things are really helpful to to understand. First, equanimity does not exclude compassion or outrage. These are experiences they are arising in the mind. Now the question is, what's our relationship to the compassion or the outrage? Are we getting exhausted by our compassion? Are we being overwhelmed and incapacitated by the outrage? Or do we retain a fundamental disidentification where we're stepping back a little bit from those experiences and we're having them, which is distinct from being them. And that space of separation, in my view, is at least 50% of what mental health and spiritual practice broadly is all about, minimally. So if you get that, just that separation, you're half the way home, (laughs) just right there. So that's very important. You can still have a normal human response. I remember this conversation I had with uh, the teacher Sylvia Borstein like 25 years ago when I first started sitting retreats. She said essentially that she would never want to have a heart so equanimous that she would not sorrow at the suffering of others. So we, we want to, we could still have that reaction to things. We can also preserve our discernment. Equanimity does not mean giving up our discernment of what are the facts, what are lies about facts, who tells the truth about facts, and so forth and so forth. You retain your discernment. You see what you see and you value what you value and you plan what you plan while with a growing equanimity, you kind of build out a space inside of inner freedom. A good definition of equanimity as well is to expand the range of experiences in which we are free. It's easy to be equanimous about getting a foot massage while people are praising you. Uh, It's harder to be equanimous when your back hurts or Mm. when someone has been mean to you or something terrible has happened in your country. Uh, so we're building out the range of experiences. And that, to me, is a realistic aspiration. We're just building out that range over time. What do you think?
0: I do have a question coming out of all that, which is that's a very kind of top-down, comprehensive way to think about it in terms of the way we think about experiences, maybe thinking about them as um, disidentifying from them, something that mm-hmm. you said earlier, I feel angry, not I am mm-hmm. angry. And I do think that that's a really important distinction. How do you move into that, though, practically? How do you relate to an experience that you're having in the moment? So in the moment, you feel that something has happened that shakes your equanimity. You Mm. perceive something as being unfair that comes up on the news. You have an interaction with somebody else that feels kind of crappy, whatever it is. And you have that initial experience, right? That experience of, you know, whatever how do you go from uh into this feels bad, but I am not bad to maybe put it a certain kind of way, or this feels bad, but I'm not going to allow it to take me in a bad direction.
1: Right, so there's what you do in the moment, Mm -hmm. okay? And then there's also how we train ourselves Mm. for the next moment. As you know, I, I think of the development of equanimity as something that can occur in particular through four means, four ways to develop equanimity, uh, including about the times in which we live. With regard to what you do in the moment, I think one of the major things is to slow it down. Slow it down. Slow down the subcortical processes in your brain that are just ready to hijack you and give your more modern neocortex time to come online, to form a wider view, to have perspective, to reserve your rights, to be judicious, to figure out what you're going to do, to get your ducks in a row before you move in, let's say. Slow it down. That's so helpful. Really slow it down. And then with regard to more of a long term, it's really interesting that if you think of it, anti-equanimity involves an invasive sense of needs unmet which then initiates a drive response, which could be called craving in the traditional language of Buddhism. So therefore, as we develop various psychological resources inside to deal with challenges to our needs, and also as we develop an increasingly intrinsic, hardwired, underlying background sense of an enoughness of safety and satisfaction and connection in the present, So there's a background sense of calm and contentment and confidence and self-worth in the background. As all that happens in you, as you develop that in you, then when challenges to needs come, you feel resourced as you face them. And therefore, it's like your keel has gotten deeper. You feel less rattled by them. So in terms of a training, one of several important trainings is to deliberately grow psychological resources inside strengths tendencies traits skills attitudes happiness is a very important um, well-being is a very important psychological resource that makes us more resilient and helps us bounce back faster from trauma for example you know develop these in yourself including as they're relevant to particular challenges that are challenging your equanimity say and also really internalize whenever you have a chance to the felt sense of needs met enough in the moment, moments of broadly calm contentment and confidence that are genuine and real. And in so doing, you you deepen your keel and you build up this core. So those are those are two for me that are absolute go-to's. And they're both really cool. <laughs> slow it down In the moment mm-hmm. when the oatmeal hits the fan, just try to slow it down, find your ground, reserve your rights. And then when you do move in, you know do so on the basis of feeling grounded with a sense of traction. Uh, in Gravitas in what you do and also uh, Offline or in preparation for when the oatmeal hits the fan Really develop these wonderful qualities inside yourself. Uh, that'll serve you well
0: So I think that's great. That's really useful and a moment ago you mentioned a couple of key components of equanimity and Speaking personally, sometimes for me, just understanding something a little bit better can actually help me get better at it. Knowing that my brain is going into a certain kind of process can help me see it more clearly. For instance, distinguishing between circuits of liking and circuits of wanting, and watching myself move from, okay, I'm liking this, but am I wanting it, and uh, now I'm moving into some not so great wanting, maybe even with the absence of liking alongside of it, as you said, moving into that hell state that you were talking about earlier. So in that context, it can be really good to just have some basic goalposts to try to hit or some different uh, components of this experience to be aware of, so it becomes sort of easier to cultivate. So let's go through each of those. I think you said you had four of them.
1: That's right. Four ways to develop equanimity, four ways to be more equanimous, and we've hit some of the points. So for some of these already, I'm gonna kind of move, move sort of quickly so fast. Yeah. First, understand your mind. Mm. In other words, observe uh, first this movement from liking to wanting or disliking to hating, let's say. Observe that process. It's natural, it's very effective. It's designed by mother nature to keep her little, <laughs> her little babies alive back in Jurassic Park. It's, it's very effective but it can hijack you and sweep you away. So observe the transition from the hedonic tone and what happens next, and see if you can rest in and just be with the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, relational, or neutral, say, in all its complexities, while retaining a freedom to mount an adaptive response, effective forms of coping uh, without feeling compelled or uh, hijacked or reactivated in how you are responding to what's happening. So understand that. That's very useful, there's no replacement for that. And then frankly, uh, for those for whom it's their cup of tea and I recommend it, it starts conceptually but it becomes more experiential, you deepen in terms of understanding your mind in the recognition of the foamy insubstantiality, the cloud-likeness of all experiences. So they feel increasingly less weighty, they feel more fluid, more compounded, and increasingly ownerless. They are occurring uh, and it's perfectly fine to have preferences to encourage more happy experiences and withdraw fuel from unhappy experiences so they occur less often, perfectly fine to do that. While meanwhile, recognizing their, in the technical sense, their emptiness. It doesn't mean our experiences are void, that they don't exist, they exist emptily. That movement, which can be observed very directly, just think of anything, you look at a cup or you hear a sound, and then if if you were to slow that experience down or do a quick instant replay on it, you would recognize that, oh yeah, those three characteristics are found in all experiences of transience, They're all changing, even if they're fairly stable, there's a dynamism in them that's maps to the underlying metabolic dynamism in the tissues and the nervous system that are supporting, that are the physical basis for these mental experiences. Um, You can also recognize that they're made of many parts, it's like many threads in the tapestry of consciousness, and that they occur based on all kinds of factors that extend out into life altogether, into evolution, and back into deep time. That supports equanimity. So first, understand your mind. Second, really manage aversion. We have a negativity bias. It is really easy to get hijacked by not liking things. Hijacked by fear, anger, disgust, exasperation our righteous position about others. I just watch my mind how it's almost like a cascade. You know, somebody does something, then there's the feeling tone of it, which let's say is that I felt mistreated by them. And then really quickly is this elaborate case against them that just starts growing in my mind, like weeds in the backyard of this righteous case against the other person. So be very careful about aversion, you know, really manage it in ourselves. It's one thing to not like stuff. It's one thing to experience it as unpleasant. It's another thing to move into hatred for it. And I think that's very relevant these days in the wider world to observe, for example, how the longing for justice can become a craving for vengeance, Hmm. or to observe how the sense of concern that you can't do anything about becomes a sense of being dispirited and immobilized. And there's, you might as well just give up. Be really careful about that at all scales. Really manage aversion. And managing it means being mindful of it in real time. And then over time, certainly also coping outwardly. It supports equanimity to fix the leaking faucet that's keeping you awake at night, or to talk to your neighbor about doing something about their dog that barks all night long that doesn't let you sleep. I mean, equanimity is no replacement for effective action out in the world. And, and actually, effective action can support equanimity. It really can, because you you take care of stuff and you know it's done and it doesn't bother you anymore. Mm-hmm. Sure, let's do that, it, it scaled up too, obviously at the level of public policy. So that's the second thing, manage aversion. And um, that then leads to the third suggestion I have, which does also help to manage aversion, Grow the good. Mm, mm -hmm. I spoke of this already. Grow good resources inside yourself, strengths of different kinds, grit, determination. You and I wrote wrote the wonderful book, Resilient, which a lot of people honestly have appreciated.
0: (laughs) Great plug, dad, yeah.
1: Yeah, 12 strengths. Confidence, motivation, Mm -hmm. intimacy, generosity. Yeah, we spent a whole year doing
0: episodes on that. That was basically the start of this podcast.
1: That's right. So grow the good. And also, um, as you're dealing with the crud, it supports equanimity to recognize what is also true. What's also true? Mm. So you're you're aware of this person who has mistreated you or you think is a jerk, or maybe they're a political figure, you, you think they're a really horrible jerk, okay. Alongside that, okay, acknowledging all this true about that, what else is true? Who are the people as Mr. Rogers' mother famously told him, who are helping? Who are the helpers alongside the people who are the hurters, Mm. at least as you see it? So who else is trying to be constructive? Who else is trying to do the right thing? Who else is just getting stuff done? What is the good inside you that is untouched by different emotional reactions you might have? What are the possibilities that are realistic for you or for others in the future that are not inherently thwarted by what's happening currently in the world, right? Turn to the good and grow the good. That really fosters equanimity, including in the ways I described about hardwiring the felt sense of calm, contentment, and confidence as building up this kind of deep residue inside of unshakable well being. And then the last thing, uh, the fourth, if you will, is. Fine wood endures. The passing show is not a reliable basis for lasting happiness because it's constantly changing. Hmm. It's one thing after another, and I think sometimes about uh, listening to the traffic reports in the morning. There's always an accident, and that's ephemeral. What's enduring are things like nature, the natural world, the sense of the universe around us, the stars ahead, you know, the ocean around us. The earth below. Another thing that's enduring is um, our relationships. Our relationship, for us, you and I. You know, things go up and down in the world. There's a stability in our in our commitment to each other and our caring for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's more enduring. Also, practice. Uh, you know, practice is something you can return to. No matter how much th- things are falling apart around you, we can practice with them. Practice itself is a refuge. You know, I have done a formal taking of refuges at different times. And one of my seven key refuges, actually, um, I say I take refuge in or I abide as, as a refuge. One of them is practice. The idea of bringing your practice to bear no matter what. That's enduring too. So it's shifting from the ephemeral to the perennial. Find what endures. And ultimately, what endures is. Your own deep nature, Mm, mm -hmm. minimally grounded in our biology inside the natural frame of the Big Bang universe, perhaps, as some would say, extending transpersonally in ways that are meaningfully distinct, however you experience it and understand it. What's that deep, true nature? Awakeful, benevolent, fundamentally wishing the best, uh, fundamentally, There's a stillness, a stillness in the center of all the motion deep down in everyone's nature and becoming aware of that and staying in contact with it as much as you can as you move through your day. That would be another aspect Mm. of this fourth support for equanimity, uh, find what endures.
0: That's really great. And that's a wonderful, I think, list of characteristics, things to think about, however you sort of want to frame it. Again, to just give a quick recap, that's basically understanding your mind, particularly maybe understanding the tendencies of the mind that are, to an extent, baked into us by evolution and by just the You know, the nature of the meat up in the coconut. These aren't things for us to be uh, mad at ourselves about or even really bothered by if we can avoid it. They're just the nature of being. But the better that we can understand the mechanisms, the more influence we can have over them, even as we are experiencing them. So understand your mind. The second one was managing aversion, being careful about how we move from disliking things into hating them. Or as you said, uh, being careful about how we move from a desire a rightful desire to make things better, a desire for change, a desire to acknowledge the bad things that happened in the past to a discrete wish for vengeance, particularly wish for vengeance in a concrete way, in a violent way against specific individuals or specific groups. Uh, Things can go into a pretty dangerous direction once that starts to happen. Then grow the good, develop strong positive traits. We've talked about that endlessly during this podcast. And finally, find what endures. Those are the things that you can rely upon and the things that are kind of the nature of the sky as opposed to the clouds that pass in front of it, to put a certain Mm. kind of way. So does that sound like a pretty good recap? Perfect recap. Wonderful. Just to add one kind of final contribution to that idea of finding what endures. That's one where I think people can relate to it. In the mega macro big out there, we are all just grains of sand on a grain of sand, floating on a grain of sand, flying through the universe at whatever it is, millions of miles an hour. I Don't quote me on that. It may not be that. You know what I mean? At the speed of light. And that's, that's helpful for some people. But also, I think that there are very basic things that for most of us tend to kind of endure even as all things around them arise and pass away right? It might be a particular relationship that you know that you can fall back on, but maybe you don't have one of those. So then maybe it's your own good heart. Okay, well then maybe you question the nature of your own good heart. Okay, well then as you said, worst case scenario, you can normally find refuge in practice. The things that you do on a day-to-day basis that serve as fulfilling acts for you. Maybe it's a psycho-emotional crutch, maybe it's not. Who knows? Who cares? It's something that you can rely upon. And I think that that kind of granular, in-the-moment way of thinking about it can be really helpful for a lot of people, myself included. I've been very aided by thinking about the world that way, particularly as the, uh, well, to put it a certain kind of way, particularly as the ground around us in terms of politics, pandemic, climate change, whatever, feels more unstable than ever. What are the things inside of our individual lives that we can find that are truly reliable?
1: Very, very
0: good. So to offer a quick recap for our conversation today, today we discussed equanimity, which we defined broadly, as uh, Rick said, as being able to walk stably over unstable ground, to put it a certain kind of way. Another way, maybe a little bit more simply, how do you keep your cool when things are challenging around you? Fundamentally, we gave a variety of definitions, but that's kind of what it all came back to. We then responded to some common critiques of equanimity, including framing it not as, to be frank, gaslighting of various forms where people dismiss reasonable, understandable uh, critiques or experiences that people have about the unfairness of the world, the horrible things that happen within it, and instead focused on equanimity as a way where it actually supports good action out in the world by filling ourselves up, by maintaining our own mental health. we more likely to be at action and able to help other people do the same thing. A little bit before that, actually, we talked about the foundations of equanimity. Uh, We talked about the psychological basis of it. You gave a great summary of a lot of the neurological basis of it, and I spoke for a moment about the uh, philosophical basis of it, (laughs) to put it a certain kind of way. Then from there, we talked about fairness and unfairness, including going really into Rick's experience of how he's dealt with the experience of unfairness in the past, before finishing with the four components of equanimity, which I named again toward the end, understand your mind, manage aversion, grow the good, and if you can, find what endures. So that's going to be it for today's episode. To give a couple of quick reminders, if you could, we're on Patreon if you would like to support the podcast. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast if you would like to support the show. Also, if you've been enjoying it, please take the time to leave a rating and a positive review, subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and hey, maybe even tell a friend. It really does help us out. So again, until next time, thanks for listening.